Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Grass withers and the flower fades and the word of our God stands forever. So this morning we're in a passage from the Gospel of Luke. It's very familiar to most of us. If you've been around church much at all, you know the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in fact, if, you're not, if you've never been in church, even in our culture today, you kind of understand the story of the Good Samaritan. You know what it's about. The term has kind of flown into our popular culture, this understanding of what it means to be a Good Samaritan. It's this idea in our culture today that you're a Good Samaritan when you do a good deed for someone, maybe an undeserved deed, a deed they can't repay you for, or anything in, in varying degrees that um, makes you a Good Samaritan. If someone if you drop your wallet in the store somewhere or you leave it sitting down in the half-priced bookstore, which just happens sometimes, and then you go to the counter and sure enough, someone has brought your wallet to the front and there's money in it. Who has done that? Someone has been a good Samaritan, right? And they have found this and they have brought it. Yes, it was Joel. He's pointing to himself. That was my son that did that. And, and, and a good Samaritan has left all $4 in that wallet and has brought it up to the front. And that is someone being a good Samaritan. There's, and there's countless examples, right, we could have of things like that that happen. And we understand culturally what it means to be a good Samaritan. And so we, we take that idea and, and the culture takes this idea and, and boils Christianity down to this idea of what it means to be a Christian is you seek to be a good Samaritan. Well, this might shock you, but that's not the point of the good Samaritan. That's not the point of the parable of the good Samaritan. And maybe you're surprised that how did, 
how did I know Darren was going to say something that this was, that was not the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan? But we often do this with the parables and stories like this in the Bible. We take the principles and we turn them into the moral of the story. We turn them into Aesop's fables or something along those lines where it's like, see, this person did this. This is what we're supposed to do. And we make them into the moral of the story. We take the parable of the Good Samaritan and we turn it into a story about how we are supposed to go out and do good for others. But that doesn't go far enough with what the parable of the Good Samaritan is about. The text starts off with this inquiry. We have an inquiry from a lawyer Jesus has, has taught. He has said that he's, he's with a group of people, likely, and he has this one-on-one encounter with this lawyer who stands up. This isn't like a, this isn't Peterson. This isn't some sort of civil lawyer, you know, someone who does your taxes lawyer. This is a, someone, an expert in the law of God. The first five books are called the law. Sometimes the whole thing is called the law of God. This is someone who knows his Bible. That's the kind of lawyer that we're talking about. This is a religious person who understands the scripture and he stands up and he gives this inquiry. This is likely a Pharisee and his inquiry is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's a very good question. Super question. It's a question that is not asked nearly enough in our culture today. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That there's a concern that after this whole thing, this whole party we're all involved in is over, then what? It's a question that isn't asked quite often enough. The Pharisee probably doesn't really ask because he wants to know. He's trying to trick Jesus a little bit. Can he, can he stump the teacher a little bit? Questioning is not, it's not like he's, he's kind of challenging Jesus in the midst of this conversation, but he does inquire, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And responding to the question that the man asked there in your inserts, the first quote from J.C. Ryle, if you want to follow along with me, responds to just this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? J.C. Ryle says, it's a question which deserves the principal attention of every man, woman, and child on earth. We are all sinners, dying sinners, and sinners going to be judged after death. How shall our sins be pardoned? Wherewith shall we come before God? How shall we escape the damnation of hell? Whither shall we flee from the wrath to come? What must we do to be saved? These are inquiries which people of every rank ought to put to themselves and never rest till they find an answer. It is a question which unhappily few care to consider meaning not many, unhappily few. There's not, not many consider this. Thousands are constantly inquiring, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? How can we get money? How can we enjoy ourselves? How can we prosper in the world? Few, very few, will ever give moments thought to the salvation of their souls. They hate the subject. It makes them uncomfortable. They turn from it and put it away. Faithful and true is that saying of our Lord's. Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth unto destruction. And many there be that go in thereat. Emphasizing and pointing out the importance of this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the lawyer is right on track. This is an important question. Good question to ask. But Jesus goes a little deeper. He doesn't, this, this question asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, being a good teacher, answers this, the pupil with a question. Well, what do you think? What do you read? Uh, he answers him, uh, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He responds with a question back, 
What is written in the law? And just another excursion. Just pause for a second. Fascinating where Jesus points this person who is seeking truth. This is the incarnate Son of God. He's a prophet of the highest caliber. Every word Jesus spoke was the voice of God. He is the Logos. He is the Word of God. Everything He spoke was as if God was speaking. But when Jesus gets asked this question, what does He tell the man to do? He says, get your Bible out and take a look. What's your Bible say? That's what He's saying to this man. It's incredible to think about the Son of God, the voice of God Himself. When this man comes with this question, He says, what does your Bible say? What do you read that it says? How do you read it? Continuing on with this next uh, comment from J.C. Ryle. He says, let the principle contained in these words be one of the foundation principles of our Christianity. Let the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible be the rule of our faith and practice. Holding this principle, we travel upon the king's highway. The road may sometimes seem seem narrow, and our faith may be sorely tried, but we shall not be allowed to greatly err. Departing from this principle of listening to the Bible, departing from this principle We enter onto a pathless wilderness. There is no telling what we may be led to believe or do. Forever let us bear this in mind. Here let us cast anchor. Here let us abide. It matters nothing who says a thing in religion. Rather an ancient father or a modern bishop or a learned divine. Is it in the Bible? Can it be proved by the Bible? If not, it is not to be believed. It matters nothing How beautiful and clever sermons or religious books may appear. Are they in the smallest degree contrary to Scripture? If they are, they are rubbish and poison and guides of no value. What saith Scripture? This is the only rule and measure and gauge of religious truth. Jesus, end of our excursus. Jesus, when the man asks his question, says, what's your Bible say? So the man goes to his Bible. He goes, with this great example, tells him to look in his scripture. The lawyer knows it well. And he answers Jesus by quoting from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, and Leviticus 19.18. These two passages are the summary of the whole lot of law of God. They tell us the responsibility of man. How does it read? He says to him, and the man answers, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He summarizes the law of God with these two realities. Love God, love neighbor. If you remember, a few months ago, we went through the Ten Commandments series. We went through all ten uh, of the Ten Commandments, and they are broken up into these two tables. The first four is what it looks like, what, what obedience, what love for God looks like. And the last six, starting with honor your father and mother, are what obedience to neighbor, what love for neighbor looks like, what love for God looks like, what love for neighbor looks look like. And they knew this. They knew how to summarize the Ten Commandments. And they are these two realities. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus affirms him. He says, you've answered correctly. Um, he, the man then, as, as Jesus fleshes this out, he says these two statements. Jesus says, yes, you've answered correctly. But look with me, verse 28. Because, uh, verse 28. He said to him, you have answered correctly. After the semicolon. Do this and you will live. 
And, and the life there is not just, well, the, you'll, you'll keep on breathing air. The context is, how do I inherit eternal life? And he, so he's saying, do this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and you will inherit eternal life. He's saying, do this, and you will live. What a shocking statement from the mouth of Jesus. Do this, and you'll inherit eternal life. Why do I say that's a shocking statement? Well, because the whole history of the Christian church, the whole history of the Christian church has been this declaration, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, so that no one can boast. But here Jesus is saying, yeah, do these two things. Love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do this, and you'll live. Jesus is teaching works salvation here. <laughs> we might want to look into what's going on at this point. Does Jesus believe in salvation by works, that they can do these things and they will inherit eternal life? Well, let's see as Jesus fleshes this out, because then he goes on into a story. The verse 29, the man <laughs> Asked, well, then who is my neighbor? Okay, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, tell me who my neighbor is. Jesus looks in and he includes there in verse 29 that this man has a desire to justify himself. Very interesting. We're always looking for ways to justify ourselves. But the man, in, in, this, in his desire to justify himself, doesn't inquire about. It's like he assumes I'm okay with God. He doesn't worry about, do I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? I, I, he's, that's not his problem. His question, he's, he's going to find a way around this love for neighbor. Because you can tell anybody you want, I love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength. Yeah, I'm, I got that down. I, no problem on that one. The trouble comes when you're asked, do you love your neighbor as yourself? Why is that a problem? Because we can all see how you love your neighbor. We can all see how much you love your neighbor, the person that is, yes, sometimes literally next door to you, and yes, the stranger on the street as our neighbor. We can see these things. And so the man has to find a way to prove because he's going to affirm, I love God with everything. But, so he says, what is, who is my neighbor? But Jesus doesn't let him get off with this question. Who is my neighbor? So we get into this parable of the Good Samaritan. And, and actually, we don't need to take a bunch of time going through it. You know the story. It makes perfect sense. A parable has one real meaning. And, and so we go through this man's traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It's 17 miles, but it's like 4,000 feet of elevation. It might be more than that. Something. It's a, it's a very steep, uh, that, far, that, uh, that far of a trip, 17 miles, that far down. It's very steep covered with ravines, all kinds of problems. There's places to hide. Robbers, bandits can, can, uh, can come along and steal from you and, and take from you. And so it's just known to be this very dangerous pass. And so this man goes down this pass, and of course, yes, he is robbed, he is stripped, he is beaten, and he's left half dead. Half dead. That's not good. It's not all the way dead, but he's half dead. That's not where you want to be. Here this man lies half dead, and we know what happens. This religious man, this priest, comes walking by. Surely, surely the priest who knows the law of God, who knows Exodus 23, verse 4, which says, this Exodus 23, verse 4, this is how radical the love of God is to be towards your neighbor and even your enemy. Exodus 23, 4 says that, if you find your neighbor, your enemy, your enemy neighbor's donkey in the ditch, you are to rescue that donkey 
and bring it back to your neighbor, even if he's your enemy. I mean, your enemy's donkey. Your enemy's donkey, if it's in a ditch, you are to rescue that donkey and take it back to your enemy. A donkey. Okay, there's all kinds of things like that in the Old Testament we could look at. But, I mean, the radical that you're, uh, reality of rescuing your enemy's donkey. Well, here is a human being. Doesn't, we don't know, that's not likely this guy's enemy. He's just someone who's left half dead. And people get into all sorts of reasons. Well, he did it because of this, this. It doesn't matter. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is the man didn't help him. Okay? The priest doesn't help him. He passes on by. It's just the story, and he doesn't help him. The guy you think would. So then the next superhero comes along, a Levite, another religious person. Surely this religious person is going to see this man who is stranded and half dead and take care of him. The Levite passes him as well. So finally, a Samaritan comes along. We don't have time to talk about they really didn't like Samaritans. Samaritans were a dirty word, essentially, to a, to a faithful Jew Long history of why that is. You can look into it. It's, it is interesting, but we don't have time this morning. But just enough to say, it, it's a scandal that this guy who is the despised person is the one who becomes the hero of the story. But the scandal is that Jesus cast this Samaritan into this role, and Samaritans are not liked by the Jewish people. Listen to all the things this Samaritan does for this guy. I said, know him. He's half dead on the road. So this is what the man does for him. I got a list of eight things. He, first of all, he has compassion on the man. Secondly, he binds his wounds. The man's bleeding. He's been beat up. And so he gets his hands dirty and he binds up the man's wounds. He puts oil on him and wine on him. Wine, I suppose, is some sort of disinfectant oil. It just makes it feel better. I don't know. He puts, he puts medicinal treatment. He treats him, hands-on treatment to this man. Fourthly, then he puts him on his own animal that he'd been riding. And then he walks him. He doesn't... He doesn't you know, I drag him along behind him. He gets the guy, ministers to him, gives him some medicine, puts him on his own animal, and then he takes him to the nearest inn. But he doesn't just drop him off. I mean, that's pretty merciful right there, isn't it? Find somebody, give him, give him some medicine, help fix him up, give him a ride to the inn, to the hospital. That's pretty generous. The guy doesn't stop there. He takes care of him all night. He stays with him all night. We know that because the next day he wakes up and he's there to pay the innkeeper. So he stays there all night taking care of this individual. And then he puts down two denarii on his rent. So he says, here's two denarii for this man to stay here. From all of my studying, this is this, his, um, basically it's two months rent that the Good Samaritan pays for this person, this person who's been left half dead. And, but, so, I, all of these things he's done along the way. This is being a good neighbor. It's an understa- understatement of the year. Being a good neighbor has done all these things for him, taken care of him, given him a ride, paid for two months' worth of rent. Then he says, I'll be back, and anything else that he accrues, charge it to me, I'll pay for it. That's, that's the story of the, of the Good Samaritan. By our world standards... We've, we've done things to be called Good Samaritans. We've turned in wallets. We've done light, nice things. Um, I've caught dogs sometimes out working and put them back on their leashes at their house. You know, no one ever knew it except for you all now. So you can 
think I'm pretty impressive, but put them back. I've driven by and sometimes the garbage can's blown over and, and sometimes I'll actually stand it back up and even pick up the garbage and put back in so Dennis doesn't have to. You know, I, we've all done good Samaritan things. And beyond that, we all feel pretty good when we see a needy person. Maybe we give them a sack of groceries or we help them with something or we help them with a gas bill or, or an electric bill or anything like that. Or maybe walking through the city and we, we drop money into a homeless person's cup or maybe we've given anonymously to people in a time of need. You see someone struggling at the end of the Walmart parking lot, so you go back in, you buy a bag of groceries, and that is generous. That is generous. That ain't nothing compared to this story of the Good Samaritan. Quantitatively, not in the same camp. This man is incredibly, neither you nor I have ever lived up to this definition of what it means to be a good neighbor. There's only one person that you care that much about. Yourself. That's why he says, love your neighbor as yourself. There's only one person you've ever done this much for. You take care of all their bills. You make sure they get to where they need to be. You put down the debit card. Any expenses they occur, you pay for it. You, don't, you know who you treat like that? You. You. That's who you treat like that. I mean, can you imagine in our context what that would mean to be this kind of a neighbor? You're on your way down to Kansas City. You see a man on the side of the road and he's hurt. He's injured. You stop all your plans. You get out of the car and you administer first aid. You get him stabilized. You load him in your car. You drive him to the hospital. But you don't just dump him off at the ER. Hey, this guy's got trouble. Hope he gets all right. You stay the whole night in the hospital with him. And when you walk in, by the way, you put down your debit card. Whatever this is going to cost, I'll take care of it. And then he gets dispatched the next day and you go to the Noco Holiday Inn or whatever and you give him two months' rent. You say, hey, go up front, I'm going to pay whatever that would cost. I go to the extended stay. I think it's cheaper to get by it in weeks' times. Go and I'm going to buy two months' worth of stays for this guy. But not only that, any expenses he occurs while he's here, here's my debit card, just charge it to me. That's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus says, this is what loving your neighbor as yourself means. You live like that? No. Okay, do I, just to help you answer that, no. I mean, you don't. I am sorry. You would go broke quicker than you can imagine. I mean, I don't care how much you got. There ain't nobody that lives like that. There's anybody that could afford to. The standard is off the charts. The standard is off the charts. Jesus says this, and the law does say, do this and you will live. The promise is you want eternal life? All right. Let's not forget the God thing, which is even, I would say, harder. Let's just go to the neighbor thing. Just love your neighbor as yourself. You'll get eternal life. Well, you know, guess what, folks? We're in trouble. If that's the point, is to be a good Samaritan like this man, <laughs> uh, I give up. I don't get, I mean... I'm trying to take care of my own family. I ain't got no money to take care of. I mean, this, this is incredible. The standard is off the charts. Jesus crushes this man by pointing out his shortcomings and failures to truly love his neighbor as himself. No need to prove how he doesn't love God with his everything for a second. He's crushed. And if we're honest, we all are. The parable of the Good Samaritan on its basic face is not a story about how we should live to inherit eternal life. It is law that crushes. He's not trying to get this guy to try to live up to some standard. He's putting this guy in a bind to where he has to stop looking to himself and look somewhere else. To stop looking to himself and to look to somewhere else. 
The parable on its face is not a story of how we should live. It is a story of how crushed we are by our own sinfulness and our own selfishness. That's why this last quote from Gelden Hughes writes, says the irrevocable word of God still remains valid, that he who observes the law perfectly will live. Still true. He who observes the law perfectly will live. He who always loves God with everything, and his fellow man will inherit eternal life. But alas, no man has ever been able to observe this law perfectly, nor can anyone do so. And because no imperfect observance of the law, however excellent it may be, can be accepted, and because the judgment of God that the soul that sins, even if only on a single occasion, shall die, is just as irrevocable, we know that no man can ever inherit eternal life on the grounds of his own merit. But God be praised that Christ Jesus as man lived a life of complete love toward God and men and as the entirely innocent one endured death for us on a cross forsaken by God so that by faith we are absolved from the death we deserve and inherit eternal life. I'm going to stop there because it's getting ahead of us. But the parable of the Good Samaritan is not the gospel. It is not the gospel. Do this and you live. It's crushing law. It's crushing law. Oh, yeah, do this and live. Okay, here's the standard. I, I can't even see it. It's so high. I can't even see it from where I am. The point of it is not, all right, let's get to work. It is, well, I hope there's something else because I'm in trouble. That's the response. I hope you see that because your next decision, if you don't see it that way, if you can't look up and say, I can't even find the top of, I can't even locate the bar to jump over. It's if you don't see it that way, your next decision you're never going to come to. You've got to see it this way. The bar is so off the charts, we haven't even got into this morning how to love God with your everything. Heart, soul, mind, and strength, every moment, every second of every day, even right now, are you loving Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Is any bit of you thinking about the Super Bowl tonight? It is now. And you're in trouble. All your heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time. The bar, you can't see it. It's crushing. It's crushing. And if you don't see it that way, you're never, and the impossibility of it, you can't see for your eyes to look somewhere else. This is why Paul takes his, Roman, his argument in Romans. Takes these first three chapters telling how both Jew and Gentile break the knowledge of God and the law that they have. And he says... Chapter 2, verses 6 through 10 of Romans says this of God. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey immor immorality or unrighteousness, there'll be wrath and fury. There'll be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Oh, all right. I like the sound. We think we like the sound of that until you hear the standard of what good is. Boy, that's great. All these things for those who do good. Well, that's me, right? No. No, that ain't us. You're not the good Samaritan. That, that, that bar is not even visible to us. Paul here is telling them how their good works can save them, but the problem is that he is simultaneously crushing them in Romans with the reality they have no true good works and no righteousness in and of himself. What other hope is there? Good Samaritan crushes us. What good hope is there? What other hope is there? We've seen the inquiry, the responsibility, the impossibility of this parable. Now the grace of the parable. 
This is not to be read as, as strictly an allegory, but it is interesting to think about the imagery that is seen there. So often in this parable, we see ourselves, we're supposed, to, we're supposed to be the Samaritan. And that is a good application. That is where Jesus says, go and do likewise. That is right. But there's a way of looking at this. Just for a second. Can you see yourself as the man left half dead? Can you see yourself as the person left on the side of the road that is desperate for someone to come along and rescue you? Can you see that? The reality is that though we are crushed by the high demands of the law, we are the ones left dead by our own sinfulness, there is one who has come. And he was not crushed by the law's demands. He instead fulfilled them. And after fulfilling all righteousness, and was in cru- he was crushed then, not by his own deservingness, but by taking our sin upon himself, standing in for us as our substitute. He was crushed, taking our sin upon himself. He then was the ultimate good neighbor who doesn't just provide by doing all these things. He lays down His very own life for those who were still His enemies. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. God shows His love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, for His enemies. He's the ultimate good neighbor. Paul continues on in Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God, this, this bar we're trying to get over, the righteousness of God to be right in God's sight has been manifested apart from the law. Apart from achieving this good Samaritan status, though although the law and prophets bear witness to it, Paul says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Fall short of this righteous standard and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. Our rescue, our eternal life, does not come from the following of the parable of the Good Samaritan. You read that and you're crushed. That's the law. That's what the law does. It says, get to jumping and good luck to you and you're going to fail. Where do you go? What do you do? Our rescue does not come from following the law, these parables, this parable of the Good Samaritan. Our rescue comes from faith in Jesus Christ as the truly righteous one. We hear the parable of the Good Samaritan. We are crushed, but look to Christ. Yes, we are crushed by the law. That's why it's so important that we love the gospel and that we keep our ears open to hear the gospel, to hear the good news. Yes, you are crushed by the law, but there is one who has fulfilled the law. There is one who has lived the righteous life we should have lived, died the death that we deserve, so that through faith in His work, not our own works, through faith in His work, we be forgiven of our sins, justified in God's sight, adopted in as His own children, filled with the Holy Spirit, sealed until the day of promise. This is what God has done. Look to Christ. Don't look to the parable of the Good Samaritan for your salvation. It crushes you. You read this, you think, I hope there's something else going to happen in the, later on in Luke, and it does. It does. Christ goes to the cross. Don't look to this for your answer. Look to this for repentance, for desperation, Oh God, if, if that's the standard, <laughs> I need something else. And there is. Look to Christ. Trust in His righteousness for you. Trust in, trust in His death 
as your stand-in, receiving your punishment for failing to love God with your everything and for not loving your neighbor as yourself. Look to Christ, trust in Him, and rejoice. And then and only then are we empowered by the activity of the Holy Spirit within us to go in our joy of that reality, this, this joy that we are forgiven, this joy that we are adopted into the family of God and receiving the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are we then empowered to then go and truly love as we have been loved? Not perfectly, but yes, we are saved by a faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. When we are reconciled to Christ by faith that produces, yes, this love for others that are around us. The Holy Spirit comes in us, within us, and in our joy we truly love as we have been loved. Have you come to the end of yourself? Are you wearied with self-salvation projects? If you think you can do it, read the Good Samaritan. Jesus says that's how to inherit eternal life. Be that kind of a neighbor. Be that kind of a neighbor. It's crushing. Are you weary with self-salvation projects? Have you come to the end of yourself? That is what the communion table is about. Coming forward, not shrugging your shoulders like you've done something. It's coming forward. I'm here to receive. I'm not here to make a show of what I've done. (laughs) I I jumped and didn't make it. I don't even know. I can't make a fraction that would reflect how far away from getting over the bar, how far away from getting over the bar I was. Not even close. I'm not coming to strut. I'm coming to receive. To receive. Confessing my shortcomings, confessing my failures, confessing my rebellions, and turning from then and turning to the Christ the one who gave his life, lived righteously, died my death, so that through faith in his work, not my own, I could inherit eternal life. Let's pray. Father, press the reality of our desperation and the glory of your grace into our hearts this morning. Christians, we are not self-salvation projects, God, and I confess and repent of these efforts of our own to make ourselves right in your sight, God. We come this morning, help us, come this morning repenting, trusting not in ourselves, but in you, in your Son, Jesus Christ, and all that he has done for us, in whose name we pray, amen.